0: scientist the human podcast commencing
1: welcome to the second episode of scientists the human podcast i'm your host samranjeet singh and i am here with professor jane raper who is a professor of biological sciences at hunter college in the city university of new york hi how are you doing
2: hi sam i'm doing great
1: thank you so much for meeting me i'm taking your class full disclosure and so i tend to look up my professor's when I can and I found out some interesting things about you online. You are involved in something called the Transgenic Cattle Project, yes? And as epic and cool as the name sounds, the details of it are are much more interesting. So could you possibly just jump right into what that is, how you got involved and what your goals are?
2: Absolutely. So I work on a parasite that is prevalent in Africa and it's transmitted by the tsetse fly, and the parasite is called an African trypanosome. And this parasite infects people and kills quite a few of them every year, maybe 50,000, but the real problem is the cattle. So way back when um, we imported cattle into Africa, And they became highly, highly susceptible to this parasite. Mm -hmm. And so when they're bitten by the tsetse fly, they waste away and then they die. So the people in Africa do not have really good cattle to do anything with because of this disease. They have to treat them every month with a drug. The drug is quite nasty. It's based on ethidium bromide. Mm -hmm. Ethidium bromide is a drug that intercalates into the DNA that would be the the basis of what everything is made from and it then causes that DNA to have mutations and so the parasite dies but as you can imagine it also can intercalate into the DNA of the cow and so it's a very nasty drug Mm -hmm. but that's what we use and that's what we have. So we decided it was time to try and find a way of protecting the cows in a different manner. And unfortunately, we can't use vaccines because these parasites are very smart. What they do is they change their coat every single week. And Mm -hmm. so your immune system recognizes them and kills them, but they're busily changing their surface coat to a completely different protein. And so it looks, Uh, It's new, it's foreign, and it takes you a while to make an immune reaction and kill them again. So they stay one step ahead of the process, and eventually they will cross the blood brain barrier, and then you go into a coma and then you die. So they're a pretty smart parasite, Mm -hmm. and they can do this for a long, long time before they kill you, because of course it's better to keep you alive for as long as possible if you're a parasite, Mm -hmm. you do need your host. But the outcome is that people in Africa, in this tsetse fly belt, which by the way is between the Sahara Desert and the Kalahari Desert, so it's right all the way across the middle of Africa.
1: So that's it's a portion huge portion It's a huge portion
2: of Africa and it's the size of the United States, just so that you have some concept mm-hmm. of how many people we're talking about and how many people are affected. Okay. So it's pretty bad. And what people use the cows for in Africa is to carry things, Mm. to plow their fields, uh, to have some milk, and maybe some meat. Not very often, but yes, Tanzania is quite a meat producer, so some meat. But they're not great big cattle herds like we have here in North America. People Mm. want to keep maybe five to ten cattle so it's not as though we would instantly turn Africa into the Midwest if we could ameliorate this disease or prevent this disease. Mm. Um, it would just give the poor people in Africa a means to get out of their poverty and actually use these cattle as ways of making money because you can carry people's stuff for them, you can plant mm. people's fields for them, and you can get things to and from markets. And so it would just really improve people's livelihoods. And we're looking at the smallholder farmer. That's, that's our particular focus. So how on earth am I going to help anybody when there's these drugs that they te- they give their cattle every month and that's the standard operating procedure and we cannot make a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So it turns out in our blood, we have a factor called the trypanosomalytic factor. And this factor is essentially the good cholesterol.
0: Okay.
2: So it's high density lipoprotein, and we know it commonly as the good cholesterol. And we think of the good cholesterol as a molecule that uh, circulates in our blood and collects up all the cholesterol that is deposited in our arteries, and takes it to the liver, and the liver secretes it as bile. That's why it's called the good cholesterol. So I think of the trypanosomalytic factor Mm -hmm. as the super good cholesterol, (laughs) because not only does it do that, but it Mm -hmm. also kills African trypanosomes. Mm -hmm. And the way it kills them is they are in circulation in our blood, they don't go hiding in cells, they just grow and divide in our blood
1: Mm -hmm. every
2: six hours. No problem.
1: The parasite divides
2: every six hours? Every six hours. That means it needs a lot of lipid and cholesterol mm-hmm. to make its membranes, right? The outside of the cell is covered in a membrane. There's lots of membranes on the insides of the cell. And so, what it does is it scavenges our lipid and cholesterol from us. And so, it eats this good cholesterol. Okay. It's a single cell, so I shouldn't really say eat. In, in scientific terms, we would say endocytose. Mm-hmm. So it consumes this cholesterol and it does it because it wants the components to make the membranes. However there's a little Trojan horse that comes along and this is a protein called apolipoprotein L1. The parasite doesn't know this and what this protein does is once it gets to the digestive vacuole of the parasite is it unhooks from the good cholesterol and it inserts into the membrane of the parasite. Mm -hmm. And it makes a pore, It makes a tiny little hole. And this little hole allows the movement of ions, things like sodium and potassium and hydrogen across the membrane. And what it does is it depolarizes that membrane. So for those of you who don't know, um, the inside of a cell has a very different ion concentration from the outside of the cell. Mm -hmm. And, we, and the concentrations are hugely different of sodium and of potassium and the way we maintain that is we have pumps in our membranes that pump the ions one direction or the other the overall result is that we have a slightly negative charge on the inside of a cell compared to the outside so if you poke a hole in the membrane and you allow what will happen is those ions will equilibrate across the membrane until there's no charge difference between the two but they will. the consequence will be that you'll end up with more molecules on the inside of the cell than on the outside of the cell. This is because we have proteins and DNA and RNA and carbohydrates and things inside of our cell that can't get out. They're trapped. So you end up with many, many more molecules on the inside. And for those of you who understand osmosis, that means the water is going to follow the molecules because they want to balance Mm -hmm. the number of of waters on either side equivalent to the number of molecules on either side. And the water, of course, goes through these channels called aquaporins, which was discovered some time ago in uh, eukaryotic cells Mm -hmm. and a man called Peter won a Nobel Prize for that. So, trypanosomes are no different. They're eukaryotic cells and they have aquapoints. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm going to talk forever. Please go um, on. We realized that human beings were susceptible to a couple of different parasites of these African trypanosomes. But in general, we're particularly good at killing the majority. So there's many different strains or species, I should say, and where we can kill most of them. But there's two that have changed, mutated, evolved to resist our lytic factor.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: One of them has made a protein that that binds and neutralizes the pore-forming protein. So we call that the trypanosome immunity protein. Okay. The other one has changed the way it takes up the good cholesterol and so it takes up much, much less. As a consequence, it appears to grow much slower. And on top of that, it's created uh, protease, which is something that can chew up protein, and that destroys the ApoL once it gets inside the cell. So it's brought two mechanisms into play, whereas the other one has only got one neutralizing protein. Okay. But the consequence of that is that these parasites, one is called trypanosome brucei radiciensi and the other one is called trypanosome brucei gambiense can infect human beings.
0: Mm.
2: All is not lost though because there are of course many many primates in Africa, monkeys, old world monkeys and apes and uh, the apes would be the gorilla. And the old world monkeys that I want you to focus on is the sooty bee, the baboon, and, oh gosh, the sooty mangabe, the baboon, oh, and the mandrel. Beautiful, beautiful, colorful faces mandrels have. So these guys are completely and utterly resistant to all parasites.
1: All parasites.
2: All Parasite.
1: All tr-
2: okay. okay, not all parasites in the entire universe as mm-hmm. far as we're aware, no, but of the parasite that I study, the African trypanosome, they are totally resistant to infection by these parasites. Okay. So we rationalized that as we evolved from these old world monkeys and we evolved from the gorilla that perhaps they had a trypanosomalytic factor that mm-hmm. was different from ours. And that's what allowed them to kill all of the parasites. And the humans had evolved a different factor for reasons that aren't entirely clear right now. That was not so good at killing everything. Mm-hmm. Got it? Yes. Good. So we decided to go hunting... In baboons blood to try and find the factor and that was a pretty pretty straightforward because we just rationalized that it would be the same components that humans had Mm -hmm. and they would just be slightly different in sequence once we got that protein we purified the whole complex and we showed that we could kill all the trypanosomes with it Mm -hmm. we then had to get the DNA because we wanted to clone the gene and give it to mice because mice in case you don't realize are not primates Mm
0: -hmm.
2: they do not have the drapanosomalytic factor Mm -hmm. and they are highly susceptible to the disease just like the cows who are not primates Mm -hmm. don't have the drapanosomalytic factor and are highly susceptible to the disease so let me ask you a question and see if you remember who has
1: the drapanosomytic factor? The the, trep- the factor that you found was in the baboons. Correct. That kills
0: everything. All, all the all the organisms. parasite species. All, and what
1: else? so you're so you're using the mouse as a model organism Correct. to test if this factor can work outside of a primate. Excellent. So you're, you're going to, in a process that I currently won't be able to explain, but I will look up, you're going to insert that, the gene for that factor into a mouse
2: model. Correct. Okay. Super. So remember, only primates have this lytic factor, so that would be monkeys and, and apes, great apes, and not all of them. So it's the old world monkeys. Okay. And that, so that, by that, I mean pe- the monkeys that are in Africa, and so all the monkeys that are in South America or Asia or other areas of the world do not have this lytic factor. So we understand by that, in evolutionary terms, that it was acquired after the split of the continents. Okay, when okay. all the apes got separated from each other, mm-hmm. then s- there was some pressure on the population that made them acquire this. lytic factor Mm -hmm. on the continent of Africa it does not appear to have happened in other places and uh, let me see where were we okay so we've got all these monkeys that are super resistant so we cloned the genes that encode the baboon lytic factor Mm -hmm. and we indeed put those into mice and we asked are the mice protected and indeed they were and they were protected against the parasite that causes rDCNC, and we have not yet had the opportunity to test if they're going to be protective against the parasite that has gambiense. Mm-hmm. We're not too concerned about that because the cows only get rDCNC, okay. right? So they only get the one kind of parasite. Of course, they get all the other parasites. They get. They've all got crazy names like Congolensi, Evansi, mm-hmm. Louis I, don't worry about that. Uh, they, they get all of those parasites, but the one they don't get is mm-hmm. gambiense The cattle don't get infected by that
1: okay.
2: at this moment in time, okay. we should state. So we put these into mice. They killed all the parasites. We were very happy about that.
1: When you say they killed all the parasites, did they completely wipe them out or was they're, after some time, they pop back up again like in humans.
2: They completely wiped them out. Okay. Just like in baboons. Okay. Completely Completely. wiped them out. Okay. So I then approached my colleagues who work in the International Livestock Research Institute in Kenya, who have been trying to cure cattle of this disease forever, Mm -hmm. and their mechanism was to take a cow that is resistant to the disease or tolerant is perhaps a better word. So it. originally, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. In Africa, they, they had their own cattle that were, had grown up with the parasite, one could say, had evolved with the parasite. And so these cattle have become quite tolerant. So they carry the parasite, but they don't get sick.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So we call them, they don't have a clinical episode how you would say with humans. Mm -hmm. The problem is, as far as the farmers are concerned, they're too small. Okay. They are small, they can't carry a lot, they can't pull plows, they're not very strong, they're terrible at breeding, they don't make good milk, and they don't make good meat. Mm -hmm. So whilst they are in essence a cow that is tolerant to the disease, the farmers don't want them. Mm. They want these big, honking, muscly, well-breeding, great-milk-producing cows that the Europeans brought in. However, Mm -hmm. those cows are highly susceptible to the disease. And so what my colleagues Stephen Kemp and Harry Noyes did was to set up a breeding program. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now, cows have a gestation period of nine months, just like human beings and they take two years to reach sexual maturity. Mm -hmm. And so after many, many years of breeding a big stonking muscly European cow with a small but tolerant of disease African cow, the progeny they got out were a real mishmash and none of them came out to be the perfect cow which was lots of muscles and highly tolerant, Mm. and it turns out that all the the genes that one needs to be tolerant are scattered all over the genome, Mm -hmm. and the chances of them being inherited by the offspring and all ending up in the same animal is vanishingly small, and perhaps if one was breeding mice, one could achieve this aim, but they stopped at the cattle after a couple of generations.
1: So this is where you come in?
2: So, yeah, this is where I come in. When we, literally the day we put the genes into the mice and we saw that they were resistant, I picked up the telephone and I called them. Mm -hmm. And I said, I have the gene for you. (laughs) I have the gene. Would you be interested in making a transgenic cow? Mm. And they said, yes. It was fantastic. What was that conversation (laughs) (laughs) like?
1: I how excited they, must
2: have been. they were so excited because mm-hmm. they've been trying to do this for years through a natural breeding program and had not been able to achieve it mm-hmm. because of the nature of the tolerance. And so they said this was their dream and if they could do this before they died, this would be totally fantastic. So then we had to think, well, who do we turn to to fund this kind of project because breeding cows is not cheap. So initially we tried uh, Britain and we did relatively well in the scoring process, but they were a little leery, that means frightened, of uh, <laughs> the transgenic animal prospect mm-hmm. in Africa. I mean, the Brits in general, of which I am one, mm-hmm. but I don't think... I
1: suspected, but I don't want to ask.
2: Yeah, but I don't think like <laughs> them, um, oh. were are a little... Against, for reasons I don't really understand, against uh, transgenic crops and transgenic animals. Mm -hmm. Even though they may ultimately be the way to feed the world, as we say, Mm -hmm. they are somewhat against it. So it didn't fly with the Brits. So then we turned to the National Science Foundation in the States. And people in America are much more open about transgenic. Crops and transgenic animals. Mm-hmm. And the National Science Foundation had partnered with Bill and Melinda Gates to create a new type of grant called BREAD, which stands for Basic Research to Enhance Agricultural Development.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, BE BREAD. Fantastic acronym. Mm-hmm. The majority of the people that they were looking to fund were people who work with plants. To make them either disease resistant or drought resistant, yeah. or um, and they weren't frightened of transgenics at all. Mm-hmm. So we approached them with a grant application to make a transgenic cow to save the help the poor farmers in Africa who run small holding farms. And, of course, it would enhance agricultural development because they could use the cow to carry things, to plow the fields,
0: yeah, to for the
2: manure, for the milk, everyone would, it's a win-win. So,
1: sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. what is a holding farm?
2: Small holding. Small so holding by farm. that, what we mean is they plow maybe four acres of land. Okay. They have a couple of goats, so they have a couple of cows, so it's size. literally okay, size, Got that's it. what it means, Got it. size. And it's to take care essentially of their family.
0: They're not mm-hmm. trying to
2: feed the entire country or town or anything like that. They're mm-hmm. trying, And they would often go to the side of the road and try and sell their wares, or go to market and try and sell some of their products if they had extra.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, thank you for asking. <laughs> Stop me if I'm if I'm saying words and things that don't don't um, I will. make sense. Uh, so the National Science Foundation were fantastic, and they were very excited with all of our preliminary data in the mice, and they said this fits perfectly the call, and so they funded us to make this cow, mm-hmm. or at least to to sort out all the basic principles and get it on the road. So we started with um, Roslyn, which is where Dolly the Sheep
0: mm-hmm.
2: was made. And we asked them to go to Gilri in Nairobi, in Kenya, and train the scientists there in the art of cloning animals, farm animals. Mm-hmm. And the man we sent was a man called Bill Ritchie, and he was one of the Dolly the Sheep guys from Way when. And the way you make a transgenic cow is the same way you make a tran- you made Donnie the transgenic sheep, mm-hmm. the clone sheep, sorry. So we sent him to Africa, and he trained a couple of scientists over there to go through the entire procedure. And it's quite convoluted. So you have to take the eggs from a cow, and they would go down to the slaughterhouse and collect the ovaries every morning. Mm -hmm. and bring them back to the lab and then you have to take the skin cells from a very young fetus so yes because you want your DNA to be young and you'll see why in a minute your DNA source to be young so you take the skin cells from a very young fetus cow and we decided we wanted to make a bull so we took it from a male fetus Mm -hmm. That is also in the in the abattoir. So we would take the skin cells from this male fetus. Right, so if
1: you're doing this, you can actually pick, which is kind of, kind of cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You can pick the gender.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did with Dolly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- for those of you who don't know, Dolly was named after Dolly Parton, who is this singer here in the States with very large breasts. That's what she's famous for. Mm-hmm. And they cloned <laughs> and her singing, mm-hmm. and they cloned Dolly from the, a breast cell, oh, okay. so she was made from a breast cell, so this was the in joke uh, with uh, the uh, Scottish <laughs> Rosalin crowd, it was to call her Dolly after Dolly part. Mm-hmm. So anyway, back to the cow. Mm-hmm. So the way you make a, a cloned animal is you take a skin cell from a very young, young fetus, So it's a very young cell. It hasn't had many divisions. It's still got nice, long, what we call telomeres, which govern how long one lives. Mm. And they get shorter and shorter the older and older you get. So you take that skin cell and you pull the nucleus. That's the part of the cell that contains all of the genetic material. You pull that out of the cell. And then you take the egg that you collected from the abattoir Mm -hmm. and you pull the nucleus out of that as well. So all the genetic material that was in the egg is removed. And you put the nucleus from the skin cell into the nucleus of the egg, into the remaining cytoplasm of the egg. Mm -hmm. It's a crazy procedure. And no matter how many times you do it, and no matter how good you get at it, your success rate never goes above 20 percent because of the nature of the procedure you're pulling out an organelle from one cell and then you're sticking it into the organelle of another
1: you're perforating the membrane yeah how does it repair itself
2: oh so cells when you wound them what they do it's just like us you can sort of take a set of cells in a dish in a petri dish and you can cross them with a razor blade, and you'll really wound all those, those cells. Mm-hmm. What we do in, as eukaryotes is we take the, these intracellular vesicles called lysosomes that perhaps you've heard of as these um, suicide bags that are full of digestive enzymes, and we, we move those lysosomes to the surface of the cell, and we use that membrane that was around those vesicles to seal the hole. Mm-hmm. It's, an, okay. it's a wound response that all cell, all eukaryotic cells have, and the egg is no in, different, yeah, so and say, it will do exactly the, the same, it will just seal okay. the hole. Yeah, okay. Of course, a lot of them won't seal the hole and they'll die, and that's part of our 80%, yeah. um, right. but many of them will succeed in sealing that hole before too much good things escape, and they go on to survive. Now, what happens to the egg now is it's gone from being a nucleic acid um, collection of one. Remember, when you have fertilization, you bring a sperm and an egg together. Mm -hmm. The sperm has half the quantity of genetic information and the egg has the other half. And when you bring that together, you go from being one set of chromosomes in each individual to having two pairs. chromosomes in the out in the resulting zygote so by giving the egg a skin cell it automatically gets a complement of two chromosomes so the egg thinks it's been fertilized but it hasn't and it undergoes the program that it would because it's now got two copies of genetic material just like it would if uh, an egg and a sperm came together and it starts to divide and once it gets to the eight cell stage of division, we know that it's probably going to continue and become a, a blastocyst, which is a, the very early stages of development where many, many cells line the inside of what was used to be the egg. Okay. Okay. The success rate of that happening is also 20%, so now we're wow. down to 2%. Okay. okay. When we get there, and they look healthy, we implant those blastocysts into surrogate mums, into cattle. Exactly like you would do for artificial insemination,
0: mm-hmm.
2: for, not artificial insemination, sorry, for IVF.
1: In vitro. In
2: vitro fertilization, just like you would do for, with human beings. And we implant only two blastocysts per cow because the cow can only carry one. Mm -hmm. baby she can't carry two and generally the the hit rate there is again you know out of 50 cows we'll be lucky if we get five pregnant and by pregnant I mean a fetus begins to grow Mm -hmm. um, to at least three months then we call that um, a pregnancy of those animals we the first time round we did this we got Two live births. We had one cow aborted at five months, so obviously there was something wrong with the development of that of that young animal.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The other two were born, and one died three days later. So there was obviously something wrong with the development of that animal. And we have one surviving male
0: mm-hmm.
2: cow. He is now going. He'll be two years old in about a month's time. And so he'll be able to be tested for his fertility. His name is Tumaini, which means hope in Swahili. And he's the very first cloned cow in the whole of Africa. And he's an African cow.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He's the one that they like. He's a Boran, and that's the name of the breed. It's definitely a breed that was originally taken there from Europe. We understand that. But this is the big muscly cow that breathes well, that makes good milk, we'll do all that's the labor. strong, will do all the labor. And so it's the very first cloned cow in the whole of, of Africa. It's quite an achievement. Wow. Now, this is a clone, right? This is not a transgenic. Yeah. So this was the first step, was mm-hmm. could we even do this? Could we translate the technology to Africa? And could they do it? And the answer is yes. So the technology has been transferred and they can do it and they have a fully functional, I guess, IVF, cow IVF system, cloning cow system
0: Mm -hmm.
2: in Nairobi. So then our job came in, which was to create the piece of DNA that is ultimately going to end up in a transgenic animal. So we did, we decided that we needed to be a little tricky about the way we did this because if you remember the um the good cholesterol is carrying a gene the product of which is called apolipoprotein l1 and i told you way back in the beginning that it makes pores in membranes Mm -hmm. so it's toxic So we can't do the usual trick when people clone genes they put it under what's called a strong promoter and what I mean by that is when uh, the machinery lands on the DNA to turn the DNA into message and then that message into protein when we put strong promoters on on these genes it means it makes a lot of message which then means you get a lot of protein Uh, but a lot of this protein would probably kill the animal because it would make holes everywhere and it would be very, very dangerous. And in fact, some colleagues in France had tried to make a transgenic mouse earlier on and they put it under a very strong promoter and all the babies died when they were born. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So we took this to mean too much of a protein is a bad thing and that we have to be um, tricky about how much of the gene product is made.
1: So the protein that we're talking about is apolipoprotein, L1. Yeah. So this protein is not specific to parasites that may ingest the high-density lipoprotein?
2: That's a great question. Um, No, we don't think so the reason we don't think so is because people in Africa have mutated, I shouldn't say mutated, they've changed the gene a little bit and they've changed the sequence in two places so there's two different, well there's three now, a of this gene that are prevalent in quite high levels circulating in Africa and one of them has really expanded in the population in west africa and we've called it g1 for genotype one so all of us the majority of people in the world uh, 80% of the people in the world have what we call genotype zero mm-hmm. and we all have exactly the same sequence and we all make exactly the same protein mm-hmm. and there are people in west africa but mostly in Nigeria, and originally it was discovered in the Yoruban tribe in Nigeria, and they have a variant which we call G1, and there's two amino acid differences, right? So amino acids make up a protein, and two of those amino acids are changed. The other genotype that has arisen all the way across Africa, and it's present in about 3% of the population, just all the way across the in north and south, and all the way across the middle, is called G2, for genotype Mm 2. And what happened in that particular instance was six nucleotides were deleted at one end of the protein, resulting in the loss of two amino acids. These genotypes were discovered in African Americans as genotypes that drive long-term kidney disease yes it's very confusing right so they were discovered as linked to long-term kidney disease and are now hotly pursued and researched on by many many people in kidney research as an explanation of why these um, there's a prevalence of kidney disease and when they were genotyped, it turned out that they all had either the G1, the genotype one, or they had the genotype two. In order to have a disease in their kidneys, they had to have two copies of each gene. So they could have two ones or two twos. We haven't really found people with a with one one and one two. Um, And if they had one gene that's called the G0, like most people have, they were, they didn't get the disease. So that's called, in genetic terms, heterozygous advantage. If you have one gene that is um, changed and drives disease, but as long as the other gene is um, the original, then somehow it uh, protects you from kidney damage and... We don't know how that works, we just know genetically it's a fact. So that's an area of research, understanding why it's protective to just have one copy. The good thing is that these people who live in Africa have enhanced protection against the human infected parasite. So if you've got a genotype 1 or a genotype 2, you're better at killing the human infected parasites than if you have genotype 0. So if you have genotype 0, you have no protection against the human infected parasites. But genotype 1 and genotype 2 have some level of protection against the parasites. And so the idea is that these genotypes arose in Africa to kill the parasites because the parasite would infect you when you were young and the aim of evolution is to get you to reproduction so that you reproduce and you continue your race. The downside of getting these genes was that if you got two of them, you got kidney disease but you didn't get it and die till you were 30 years old which was fine because you'd already had your babies and so you'd already We are now beginning to appreciate that it might not have been parasites that really drove the selection of these genes and it's likely it was another infectious disease and currently the hot topic would be that it was a virus. Now, What virus and why and how these genes, these gene products prevent viruses from growing inside of our cells. We don't know, but they do. These genes are very good at, at reducing viral growth inside of cells. So it looks like there was a selection against infectious disease in Africa. Which infectious disease it really was is still open for discussion. And that selection swept through the po- is slowly sweeping through the population. And, of course, when Africans were brought to the States, they came with their genes. And now, if they carry two copies, they end up with kidney disease. Now, the baboon has a great gene. It kills all the parasites. They don't get kidney disease. And their gene's not toxic at all. So why we evolved a gene that ended up being toxic and is so-so at killing parasites when the baboon's got a great gene that's awesome at killing parasites is also a very interesting evolutionary question. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I suspect the baboon really did select <clears throat> its gene to kill trypanosomes because it's so good at doing it and it's not toxic to the, to the baboon. But I'm, I'm wondering, I get more and more. I feel that the human genotypes that have been selected in Africa are probably to kill something else. And as a side um, thingy, they kill. They're relatively good. I mean, they're not fantastic, but they're relatively good at killing African
1: japanese. Okay, so I have a minimum of two questions about everything we discussed in the last 40 minutes. One, I. <clears throat> I've been thinking about the. Uh, when African trypanosomes infect humans, you said that our immune system does kill off some of the parasite, but they change their quote to the proteins, in, in fact, on their quote, and they were able to proliferate again. Have we made any investigation into the mechanism of how they do that? Because I feel like that would be a. A primary way to target them, to kill them, to attack the mechanism.
2: Oh yes, absolutely. There's a lot of people who are hotly pursuing the mechanism of antigenic variation. Absolutely. Okay. That's the term we use to describe mm-hmm. them changing their coat. So we know in the parasite that it's uh, a term called allelic exclu- exclusion occurs. So you only ever have one coat at one time and the way parasite does that is it expresses that means it turns on the gene at the very end of a chromosome and the ends of chromosomes are known as telomeres it will only turn on one set of genes one gene sorry at a time and all the other genes that are sitting around the chromosome or at all of the ends so there's always a gene that it codes for protein Uh, for the surface coat at the very end of all of the chromosomes. They're all turned off. Mm -hmm. And only one is ever turned on, and only one is allowed to be expressed at a time. So understanding this regulation has been a huge area of research for many, many years, because if we could make it turn them all on at the same time or turn them all off, then, of course, we would win the battle of antigenic variation, and we would have the upper hand. Mm -hmm. And if there was a drug that we could administer that would do that, that would make them all turn on or turn off or totally dysregulate that regulation, it would be fantastic. And so, first of all, they looked for uh, things like, how does it all happen? And it became clear that you can turn one telomere on and another telomere off. That's one way it can happen. Or you can take genes that encode this coat from the middle of a chromosome and, and switch them in during uh, replication. It also became apparent that you could possibly make chimerics. And so you can make a mix of two genes and get a different mm-hmm. kind of coat in that manner. However, the structure has to, is pretty well conserved. It's been crystallized. And so you can't really mess with the structure so that was the first discovery. And then people tried to understand what turned things on and what turned things off. And there's been a lot of looking at different ways that DNA is marked. And how histones, which are these um, proteins that wind DNA up into what's called a nucleosome and then pack it even tighter so that it can very, be very, very compact inside a cell. So there's a lot of studies on looking for special enzymes that open things up because if you understand the structure of chromatin, which is the very packed DNA, in order for an enzyme to get in there and bind to a promoter and turn on a gene, it has to open up. And so, of course, the idea is what is it that opens up only one telomere and keeps all the others closed? Is that the trick? Is that where we should be going? And mm-hmm. so we found all kinds of interesting things, but we still don't know.
1: So it is a very an active.
2: Oh my research. God, yes, yes, yes. That's yes. fascinating. And it, since the 70s, I would say, when it was realized what the VSG was, so the variant surface like a protein.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: yes, there's been a lot of people wow. trying to figure it out because that mm-hmm. would be the Achilles heel if you could stop them changing their code. Yeah. And we're always hoping it'll be something that's different from the way we regulate our chromatin because of course mm-hmm. we have chromatin too mm-hmm. and we have enzymes that open and close chromatin and we have m- things that mark open and closed uh, uh, DNA. So of course it has to be something that's unique to the parasite that we don't have. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things we've found are the same. So of course we can't target those because we would stop our own cells, right. from gene expression
1: is so fascinating. So, how, how did you get into this field? How did you decide that you wanted to be a scientist? And did, When you started, you, did you ever think that you would be, you know, facilitating the creation of transgenic Absolutely animals? Not.
2: No, I never thought I'd be trying to make a transgenic elf. It's It's extraordinary how one gets to these places. I always say to my colleagues in the field, if I do this, I'll put them all out of the job. <laughs> you know, one of the things we always say is the reason we work on these parasites is to uh, alleviate the disease in the countries where they are endemic and if one finds a cure then that's it what, what are we going to do but no seriously the parasite is truly an interesting creature it has all kinds of amazing things that we've discovered in it that, that, that have turned out to be the same in eukaryotic cells unfortunately but it's, it's a really amazing and the way I got into this was I wanted to work on restriction enzymes of all things when I graduated from my first degree which was in biology which was in biochemistry and genetics mm-hmm. in the UK. And I went down to a lab in Cambridge and I worked first on influenza, which is the virus that causes flu. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we had no idea how it was, uh, what the genetic material was, and so it was in early days of discovering all the different genes that were in influenza and understanding the role of hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, which are the proteins that are on the surface of the virus and how they drive and change and drive pandemics. And I was working with uh, a graduate student there. Her name was Isabel Ruditi. And she left to go and do a postdoctoral position in a different lab that worked on parasites. And we were friends. And I met her one day in in the city and she told me that they were looking for a technician in the lab. And I was particularly unhappy with my uh, boss at the time. She was a female. Mm -hmm. And um, she didn't think I should read papers because I was a technician and this drove me to distraction because I really wanted to learn Mm -hmm. and I really wanted to think and I didn't just want to be told what to do and that's half the fun of science thinking I mean it's all the fun of science and if you take that away from somebody where's the fun in working all the hours God sends Mm -hmm. when you're not allowed to think so I started telling all my friends I was miserable and uh, Dr. Roditi, my buddy, said, come and interview in our place. Our boss is looking for a tech. So I went to interview and I got the job immediately. Mm-hmm. And I explained to him that I hadn't actually told my current boss because <laughs> she wouldn't, um, she's weird. <laughs> and uh, he's he was totally fine with that. And she called him anyway. She found out that I was going to leave because I told her and take mm. the position and she phoned him up and said don't take her she's got thoughts above her station wow. and he said perfect that's exactly <laughs> what I want wow. someone who'll think yeah right so can you imagine I mean really right. we women have hard enough time getting places without uh-huh. other women giving you know anyway
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing <laughs> that anybody would tell a scientist, technician, or otherwise, not to read Think, papers with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean
2: that's the whole that's the whole hook. That's mm-hmm. what keeps us coming to work every day. Is you have this mad idea and you um, come in and you air it with your colleagues, and they'll tell you you're crazy, or yes, that's a <laughs> great idea, let's do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if that's the fun of science is thinking about all the things you know or don't know and connecting the dots you mm-hmm. never know when it's going to happen it's a it's a really fun process and it is without question what keeps me coming to work every day without question so that's how I began working on parasites. Oh. I started to work with them
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I looked down the m- microscope at the very first parasite that I ever saw <laughs> wiggling away and that was it I was totally and utterly hooked wow totally and utterly I mean they are they're beautiful to watch and the the notion of um it's so easy to see when you kill them because they Mm. stop moving or they swell up and they pop that it it was completely fascinating completely fascinating and parasites you know they've been around a very long time and they are superb masters of Mm -hmm. um sticking around and changing and staying one step ahead of our immune system. So they're quite the challenge.
1: Despite the fact that they're, they're harmful to people and animals, I'm sure you develop a respect for their their the way they survive, right? They're
2: it's, incredible. It's, they're yeah. incredible. There is so much to learn from them, <clears throat> and people look at very, very different aspects of the parasite. You know, I just look at one, which is um, how... Primates have evolved to kill that parasite, but there, of course, there's antigenic variation, and then This is a mechanism called GPI anchors, which is a glycosyl, anchors That's quite a mouthful. It's carbohydrate and lipid and it attaches proteins to membranes It's a different mechanism of attaching proteins to membranes and the parasite uses this a lot, and it co- int- attaches its whole coat by this mechanism. And we were the very first people to discover this mechanism in, par- in these African trips, and we thought that it was unique. It turns out it's not. Mm-hmm. You out cells do it too. But there's some great drugs that have been made to target that pathway that are unique. There's unique aspects of it um, in trypanosome biology. And then there's this other mad thing called RNA editing that trypanosomes mm-hmm. do. So you know the electron transport chain and you know the TCA cycle, the tricarboxylic acid cycle, which mm-hmm. are all parts of making energy for a cell. African trypanosomes, when they're in blood, they just live by glycolysis alone. And they don't bother with the TCA cycle or, or the electron transport chain don't need it they consume huge amounts of glucose we have huge amounts in our blood okay, yeah. and they just churn it through incredibly fast once they get into the fly however they don't have that replete amount of glucose and so they have to turn on their TCA cycle mm-hmm. and their electron transport chain and make energy like so
0: resilient (laughs) i know but
2: this is a mad way they control the gene expression Mm -hmm. it's completely mad what they do is they if you would sequence the gene that encodes for the enzymes that are part of the tricotric acid cycle you would never find them because they've done this really weird thing where they've got the dna but like half of it is missing and so when the dna is turned into messenger rna they bring these things called guide RNAs into place that fill in the gaps. Mm. It's mad. And so they create the whole message by filling in the gaps. And then that message will turn into the protein that's required to drive either the electron transport chain or the TCA cycle. But if you just sequenced it for the gene itself, you would never find them, Mm -hmm. never find them. That's a very cool part of the parasite that is also going to be great drug targets because all the enzymes that do that are very unique to the parasite. Wow. They're crazy creatures. <laughs> There's Why no I wonder am- you enjoy working with them. <laughs> not,
1: you, you almost got emotional when you were talking. them. <laughs> That's great. And I have one last question that bother you with. What piece of advice, if any, would you give... Uh, a young scientist just starting up. anything that comes to mind. How
2: young are we talking?
1: Um, let's say a person who was working in one lab and maybe their PI wasn't so supportive of their aspirations. So they moved to another lab where <laughs> where everybody was a little more you know, uh, group-oriented and supportive. And now they have space to work and think. And they're at the beginning of their career maybe at a postdoc, um, what advice would you give a young scientist who's just starting out?
2: So, you have to, I mean, the beautiful, beautiful thing about science is you do get to think, and you do get to think about the experiments that you want to do. I do think you need to talk to your colleagues about them to make sure you're not going off in some crazy tangent you also have to make sure no one else has done it either Mm -hmm. so you don't waste your time and there is often a situation where other people have tried what you want to do and it didn't work and unfortunately we don't really have a place to to publish that and to let people know so Mm -hmm. the way you find that out is you go to conferences and Mm -hmm. to meetings and you talk to people and they'll tell you oh, no, I tried that, and it didn't work. Uh, But the only way you'll find out is by talking to other people about your ideas. And if you're lucky enough, maybe your PI already knows that someone did that somewhere in the world and it didn't work. So definitely don't keep everything to yourself. It's Mm -hmm. very tempting to do sneaky experiments on the side and not tell Mm -hmm. your boss. But it could save you a tremendous amount of time (laughs) if you actually come up with the honesty and actually have the conversation, because um, it's very sort of fun to do things on the side and then go up and go look what I did. Yeah. But um, often that doesn't happen. But look what I did, because mm. often I would say eighty percent of the time the things you do don't work. Okay. Yeah. So I guess t- that's
1: an important. To it's do, really to kind important of to know, to terms right? Of, yeah. And that's
2: the same for everybody. And I think we're a little addictive because. We have these addictive personalities because when something works we get such a high <laughs> it carries us for months mm-hmm. and because it has to because mm-hmm. then things won't work again for ages right. um, and perhaps we could stop things not working so much if we actually talk to each other a bit more mm. and didn't try and figure things out by ourselves right. if you see what i mean yeah so that would be my advice But, uh, you know, don't be beating yourself. And also, there was this, I always use this phrase from Einstein, who said, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, is Mm stupid." So, if you've done it three times, stop. Okay, just stop. Mm -hmm. Go talk to someone. Try and get someone to help you troubleshoot. But, please, please. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Move on. Stop.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's a great piece of advice. And thank you so much for speaking with me. I really enjoyed this last hour almost, and I really learned a lot. And I have a lot more to look up now after this conversation. <laughs> so thank you very much.
2: My pleasure. I appreciate your time. Good luck.
0: Thank you. Termination of Current Scientist the Human episode. Stay breezy.